Gosh, well, good morning. I'm Jeff. I am uh, one of the pastors here at GCF Valley. It's good to see you here this morning. Glad that you are here. GCF Valley exists to glorify God, which means that we're not here to bring attention to ourselves, draw attention to ourselves. It really means when we glorify God that there is really one purpose for our life, one purpose for everything that we aim to do, and that is to make much of Jesus Christ, our true king. And the way that we do that then is through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And in all those things, again, our really heart's desire is to make much of Jesus because he's worthy. Amen? Amen. Part of community and gospel-centered community is hospitality. And actually, a pretty big part of hospitality is food, eating together. One of the things I really love about our church, there are many, many things, but one of the things I really love about church is that we love to share meals together. Sometimes it's maybe a coffee or uh, sometimes, for me, it's sharing a manly tea with you. <laughs> but we love the, the being together and being able to share a meal. Uh, we have a newcomer's lunch right after church today in Fellowship Hall. Uh, if this is your first Sunday here, I, I just want to say you showed up on a great Sunday. Uh, and We would love to feed you. You don't have to sign up for it. Just join us in Fellowship Hall. It's very informal. It's just a chance to get to know you. There'll be some of the... The elders, leaders there, uh, you'll walk away with the book. Uh, we'd love to do that. If you've been here for maybe a few weeks or a month and you said, oh, yeah, that's that thing I forgot to sign up for, you don't have to sign up. Just join us. We have food. We would love to have you there uh, right after the service. If you're able to, please stand now as Lori reads our text from 1 Samuel. Our scripture this morning is in 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. That's 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. There was a certain man of Ramathahim Sophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? I, am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way, and eight, and her face was no longer sad. This is the, the word the Lord has for us today. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. 
Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, we pray now not simply because this is how sermons are supposed to start, but we pray now because we are in desperate need for you to answer this prayer. Give us, Lord, in these moments we have together, ears to hear these words, your word, in the next few minutes. May they not be lost on us. We're not interested in wasting time this morning. There really is no point in just sitting through another sermon. So God, grant us exactly what we need to hear from your holy inspired word. Speak to us in such a way this morning, Lord, that we would, we would know without a doubt that God is in this place, that you are speaking. Be pleased to do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Started out as a very normal Monday morning for me. It was really a beautiful day, fall day. The sun was shining. I'm sure the birds were chirping harmoniously. I took two of my kids to school, dropped them off. I hit only green lights on the way back. When does that ever happen? So life, life was good. And I pulled back into my driveway and I noticed Becky, my bride, walking hastily out of the garage towards me. And I'm an optimist. So I thought, that is awesome. She's coming out to meet me, greet me, maybe give me a hug. It's only been 15 minutes, but, but maybe it's true. Absence really does make the heart grow fonder. And I was wrong. Turns out she was not there to meet me and greet me and give me a hug. Barely turned the engine off. I got out of the car and Becky looked straight at me and she said, don't freak out, but right now, I need you to believe in the sovereignty of God. That's the one and only time in the history of our marriage that Becky has ever said that phrase and those words to me. And I really don't have a tendency of freaking out about sort of normal life stuff. But when your wife looks at you and tells you explicitly, don't freak out, do you know what happens next? You start to freak out, at least a little bit. So almost instantaneously, I began to consider all the things that might cause me to freak out on an otherwise pleasant Monday morning. Are you okay, Becky? Did you get some, are the kids okay? Did you get some bad news from your family or my family? Are you pregnant? <laughs> because that really would require the sovereignty of God. I'm not talking like Mary, mother of Jesus level. Okay, so you're not pregnant. That's good. But what appliance just blew up? Did the basement just flood? Is the house on fire? Are we getting a cat? <laughs> because that would make me freak out. So if you think about it, there's a whole lot of everyday life that you can place between don't freak out and right now I really need you to believe in the sovereignty of God. Now it would probably be a little unloving if I didn't tell you the rest of the story because I know you're thinking, well, what actually did happen? And, and you would miss the whole sermon, so I don't want you to do that. It's, it's probably none of what you're thinking. It actually turned out to be not a big deal. We were, we were locked out of our house and there's a whole backstory there with a 1966 house and a very temperamental garage door. But it actually doesn't take much for people like us to freak out when we consider some of the circumstances of our lives. It does take a lot for us to truly trust in the sovereignty of God over and in those same circumstances. When faced with the prospect of an unknown future, or even more, church, when you face the reality of the known present, this is what life looks like, and it's maybe not so good, well, yeah, it's actually kind of easy to freak out, or at the very least, feel just a sense of helplessness. Like, Lord, I, I don't really know what to do. And that can easily lead to a kind of hopelessness, a, a kind of helplessness and hopelessness that says, Lord, I don't think my life is ever going to change and there's no one who can help me. It's one thing to be locked out of your house. 
for a few hours. A few minutes of clear thinking can solve that. But what do you do if you are facing some difficult circumstances that actually don't have an easy fix? There's no magic solution. There's no five-step uh, plan. There's no simple resolution. What do you do when you are actually helpless? What happens next to you? This morning in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we meet a woman who understood helplessness and hopelessness all too well. And far from freaking out, Hannah shows us what it means to actually trust in a God who is sovereign in her life in the midst of her own helplessness. So there are two main elements uh, that we want to look at this morning to Hannah's story. First, Hannah's plight, and then Hannah's prayer. Her plight is in verses 3 through 8. By way of review, last week, the first two verses here in 1 Samuel, we learn that there's a certain man who lived in Ramah called Elkanah. He's an average Joe. Nothing really noteworthy, nothing all that impressive about him. Hannah is his wife. So far, so good. Very quickly, verse 2, we learn that Hannah is childless. Translations will say she is barren. So Elkanah takes a second wife, Panina, and we learn that Panina is as fertile as they come. She had many, many children. And so if you're thinking, huh, how's that going to work? Is that going to work? You'd be asking the right questions. It's, it's not going to work. This is what we call a dysfunctional family. But Hannah, in particular, is, is an Israelite woman in, in deep need. And there are all kinds of reasons for her deep need, for her helplessness and her hopelessness. First, she lives in the hill country. Rama, for short, is, is in the middle of nowhere. We would say she lives in the sticks, far away from the bright lights and the big city. Second, she's a woman. That means that she's not head of her household. That means that she doesn't own any property. That means that she doesn't have the freedom to fix what is wrong and provide a more favorable life for herself, even if she wanted to. She just doesn't have that freedom. Third, she is childless. She has no children, which means that she has no heir to offer to Elkanah. She longs for children. But up to this point, that longing is unfulfilled. And we can imagine that sort of internal monologue for Hannah. Maybe this month. Maybe the next month I'll be pregnant. Maybe the month after that I will finally have a son. But one month turns into the next month and the years grind on. And though her longing for a son, an heir, continues, her hopes begin to die. Now, on a, on a strictly emotional level, some of you here can, you can actually identify with Hannah. That's actually part of your story and your life. On another level, few of us can really understand where Hannah is coming from because childlessness in Hannah's day was especially severe. Israel had no safety net, they had no provision, there was no health care, there's no public assistance of any kind. Charitable giving was a private matter, there was no state to enforce it. So for Hannah, if Elkanah, her husband, dies before her, well, she depends then on her children, particularly her sons, to provide for her in her old age. And that's the problem. She doesn't have any sons, she doesn't have any heirs, which means then that for Hannah, there's a very real possibility that she would be forced to beg, or even more, that she could actually starve. On top of all of that, and, and, and this is probably, at least when I consider it, this, this is probably even the most severe thing that she's having to deal with. There was such an enormous amount of cultural pressure for a woman to bear children. And if she couldn't bear children, this woman would live then with the shame and the humiliation and the embarrassment I mean, she couldn't escape it. A woman's honor was in bearing children and in raising up heirs. A woman who was barren was regarded as a failure and a disgrace 
especially by other women. In the same way that other men might look at other men, look down on other men at this point, if they are fleeing from battle or if they're not taking care of their land, a woman without children meant that she had not properly fulfilled her role as a woman. She's a disgrace to all women. So to not have children is shameful. This is where Hannah is. This, this is her plight. So the question is, at this point in the story, how, how do you help a helpless woman as Hannah is? What's going to be helpful? Well, we might apply a little creative thinking and, and say, you know what Hannah needs? Hannah, Hannah needs, she needs to get away. She needs to get out of that two-bit town. She needs to go to the big lights and the, and the big city. She needs to party. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now we'll come back to those two worthless sons of Hophni and Phinehas, and that's not me being mad at them. That's how the Bible describes them. But what we see here is Elkanah is a godly man. He's a consistent man. He takes his family to Shiloh for the annual feast, for the celebration. And I don't think it's too much to assume that if that Elkanah is probably thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe just Hannah needs a break. Let's get her to, this fa- to the celebration where God's people are there and she can worship. And maybe that will get her out of her troubles. Maybe, maybe that will get her out of her distress. So Elkanah, is, he's trying to be a good guy. He's a faithful husband. Notice what happens next, verse 4. Elkanah sacrifices to the Lord and gives portions to Penina and to all her sons and daughters. Now, we're not told how many sons and daughters Penina has, but uh, certainly enough that it probably took a little bit of time to hand out all those portions. Verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, the Hebrew here is really, really difficult. There are some translations. You may have a, a Bible that, that says uh, he only gave Hannah one portion. I think the point here is that Elkanah is, is actually really trying to be a faithful husband. He's, he's treating Hannah with kindness. He's not overlooking her. He's not ignoring her. But what is highlighted here in this scene, and I want you to get this, church, what's highlighted here is the contrast between Panina and Hannah. Panina has lots of kids and lots of portions to give out for her kids. Here's one for you, one for you, one for, where's Rebecca? Somebody get her, one for her, where where did Isaac, one for him, one for you, one for you. And Hannah is witnessing all of this. And she gets, whether she gets one or two portions, it's just like another punch in the gut for her. Because she's reminded of everything that she lacks. And so Hannah looks around and says, well, What am I going to do with this portion? Who am I going to share this with? I don't have anybody to share this with. We have a a phrase in English, I think, that would apply here. It's like rubbing salt in the wound. It stings even more for Hannah. So her loss, her grief, her sadness, what she lacks, children, what Panina has in spades, children, it's right in front of her face. She can't escape it. And this was supposed to be a time of great celebration, the feast. But this is, in fact, the absolute hardest time for Hannah. Now, many of you know exactly what this feels like. If you have ever grieved the loss of a spouse or a child or or a really good friend, oftentimes you, you feel that loss most acutely at holidays, Christmas, birthdays, anniversary when everyone else in your family is celebrating and happy you feel the sting and the pain and the sadness of of your loss the most i think we hear this and we have we have a lot of compassion on hannah don't we it's not hard for us to feel compassion for her plight how low she is how how absolutely helpless she is if you can believe it it gets worse Verses 6 and 7. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. 
because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. I mean, Panina is just playing dirty now. That word for provoke literally means to thunder, as if you are caught in a very violent lightning and thunderstorm that never actually ends. So Hannah has to face the thunder and the lightning from Panina day after day after day. She's tormented by Panina. We can imagine some of those hurtful words that just fly out of Panina's mouth. Hey, Hannah, what have you actually got to be thankful for? Isn't it obvious, Hannah, that the Lord really doesn't care about you? It's kind of funny, Hannah. You come here year after year after year. You come here to give thanks to God, but he has not given you the one thing that you actually want. Or or maybe the, the provoking took the form of just endless taunting. Hannah, these kids are wearing me out. I haven't had a good sleep in years. My kids are so active, they're so full of energy, it's just really hard to keep track of them. Hannah, what, what's it like to have all that free time? Now, I think if you're Hannah and you're hearing this, like this is where you, you want to extend the right hand of fellowship to Panina's jaw. That'd be a normal response, wouldn't it? Elkanah, I mean, he's here too, he... He attempts to comfort her. That backfires in verse 8, big time. And he's left with a wife here, Hannah. She's not eating. She's crying. She's depressed. She's sad. She's distraught. She's a very helpless woman. Now, just think about this. If this family came to you for help and you're sitting in our soul care room up there and you're trying to put the pieces together and you see Hannah and you're trying to figure this out, you may want to politely excuse yourself get in your car and just drive away. There's, it's complicated. Hannah is about as low as you can get. But here's what is really, really important, church, for us to understand. Hannah's in a real desperate situation. But that is exactly where God wants her to be. In humility. Desperation. And we can, it'd be real easy, in fact, to kind of skip over this text and, and bypass the, the, the reason for Hannah's misery and sadness and grief. But we can't do that because we're told twice here exactly what's going on. Verse 5 and verse 6. The ultimate reason for her sad plight and circumstances is because the Lord had closed her womb. Do you understand that? That means that God is the one responsible for Hannah's hopelessness. She wasn't barren for medical reasons. No, there wasn't some sort of trauma. The reason that she had no children, the reason for her helpless estate, the reason for her suffering is ultimately because God is sovereignly responsible over her life and for her life. God is ultimately responsible for Hannah's shame, her sadness, her grief, her sorrow, her low place. God is the source of her trouble. Just let that land on you. That's, that's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? We instinctively, when we're in trouble, we try and figure out, well, who do I blame? I'm going to blame somebody for that. Maybe it is me. Times we think, yeah, that's on me. But somebody, somebody has to be To blame. Hannah can only blame God. And that's hard. And that's really hard news to hear. And frankly, it's hard news to preach. But ultimately, it is good news. Ultimately, that is hopeful news. Is God sovereign in Hannah's life or not? If he's not, well, good luck, Hannah. And if he's not sovereign in your life, I don't have a lot of hope to offer to you this morning. But if he is, if God is actually sovereign, 
then there is not one tiny detail of Hannah's life or her suffering or her shame or her, or her humiliation that he is not aware of and that he cannot change. And this is what Job discovered. And it took him a while, pretty much the whole book. Job, at the beginning, had a lot of children, had a lot of wealth. He had lots of money. Job had the life we all want. And then he had nothing. And Job learned that because God is wise and sovereign, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is sovereign over everything that happens in your life and mine, the good and the bad. So all that happens in this world and all that happens in your life or doesn't happen in your life, God is still wonderfully sovereign and in complete control. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, as much as we might struggle and wrestle with God being sovereign over every detail of our lives, and let's be honest, we do at times. We do wrestle and we do struggle we do not want to worship a God who is not. We need a God who is wonderfully wise and sovereign precisely because we're not. And so for Hannah, God is not evil. God is not terrible to close her womb. God is her loving heavenly father who in his wise but yes, sometimes complicated sovereignty gives only good gifts to his children. So even the bad things are good when God works them for good. So Hannah's plight, childless, shame, distraught, depressed, puts her exactly where her sovereign God wants her to be. And God is about to do something, not just for her, but in her and through her, that ultimately will bless the nation of Israel. But Hannah's hope and her answers actually comes in her prayers. And that's the second part of our story here. Let's look at Hannah's prayer. That's verses 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord, wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 9 is key. It's actually a turning point in Hannah's story. It's a, it's a hinge point, we might say. And the hinge comes with those two words, Hannah rose. Literally, she got up. So it indicates decisive action on her part. Up to this point in the story, as we've read here, Hannah has largely been the recipient of other people's actions, actions done against her. Yes, Elkanah, and particularly Penina. But now Hannah rose, Hannah acts. And what is this decisive action? on Hannah's part. Hannah prays. And I want you to notice here four things about Hannah as she prays. First, in the midst of her overwhelming grief and sadness, Hannah turns to the Lord. It's verse 10. She goes to God. Is that what you do when you're in trouble? Is that the norm? For you, when you face some difficult circumstance or something that you feel just helpless about, is that the instinct? I got to go to God. Some, maybe sometimes, like let's be honest, sometimes that is what we do, great. But many times we don't. Why pray and turn to God when we can worry and fret and get busy and just solve our problems? So at times, we, we may be just really passive, almost paralyzed by our circumstances. I, I don't know what to do. But at other times, we actually spring into action, we get busy, and we try to solve our problems by ourselves. I'm going to handle my own business. Robert Wuthnow is an American sociologist, just recently retired from Princeton University. About, uh, it's been about 10 years now. He wrote a very, very fascinating book 
entitled, Be Very Afraid, which the title alone, you, that's like great bedtime reading. <laughs> Be Very Afraid. But here's what he did. He, he tried to figure out, is there a typical American response to threats? Is there, is there kind of a norm of this is how Americans respond to various threats? Terror, pandemics, environmental devastation, nuclear annihilation, among other threats. So he surveyed the history of American responses to crisis. And he began with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And his conclusion, and I'm quoting now, Americans tend not to freeze in the face of threat, but get busy and buy duct tape. <laughs> now, as a Canadian, I found that very, very fascinating because <laughs> it helps me to understand all you people <laughs> and why you do what you do. So when you're in trouble, when you face hardship, you, you try and fix it. You fend for yourself. I'm going to solve my problem. I'm going to take care of my business. i got to buy some duct tape. Is that how you actually solve the challenges in your life? I mean, how much duct tape do you have? Some of the great women of the Old Testament actually had the same fundamental problem as Hannah. They were barren. As an example, Sarah, Abraham's wife. She chose to buy duct tape. Her solution was, well, I can't give Abram an heir, so Hagar, I'm going to hatch a plan here. To make this happen, Hagar, here's what you're going to do. Abram, you're going to lie with her. It's going to work out. It's a good plan. You know what happened? I mean, for the next 10 chapters in Genesis, there's like a dark cloud that hangs over everything. Why? Well, Sarah had a plan. She worked the plan. She's, gonna, she's just going to buy duct tape. Hannah doesn't do that. That is what I think is, is really incredible. But, but oh, how tempting that must have been for Hannah, because she knows that the root cause of her suffering, well, was God. And that could easily lead to a fatalism. Well, if God is sovereign, I can't do anything about that. Who am I to do anything except just passively accept my lot in life? Nothing's ever going to change. Ho-hum. She doesn't give in to fatalism. She doesn't succumb to bitterness or resentment. I mean, if this is who God is and this is what he's not doing for me, well, I don't want anything to do with this God. No, Hannah's prayer, church, is the prayer of faith. The kind of gutsy, courageous faith that says, because I actually do trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God in this situation, I have to pray. I must pray. I'm going to continue to pray. I have to go to God. Because Hannah knows that if God had closed her womb, then it will need to be God who opens up her womb. That, that's faith. Here's the second thing. Hannah recognizes the awesome power of God. Verse 11. She calls out to the Lord of hosts, literally, the Lord of the armies. So Hannah has, she, she has a deep sense here. She knows her God. The, the Lord of the armies means he commands all the armies. There's, there's no one more powerful. There's no one more majestic. There's no one who's more omnipotent. She knows who God is and what he's capable of doing. She knows that her God has unilateral power over the entire universe. Hannah's God. Your God. Do you know that he has the resources of the entire universe at his disposal? So Hannah cries out to God. She remembers his power, his might, his majesty. That he is the Lord of the armies. That he can do whatever he needs to and wants to do. And in faith though, she assumes that even though God is so transcendent and so majestic, in faith, she cries out to him and assumes that he would still care about one helpless Israelite woman in need. And that's exactly what she discovers. Her God does care about her. Her life does matter to him. I'm going to give you a really fun fact. 
This is so cool. Do you know up to this point in the Old Testament, no one has referred to God as Hannah does. She's the first. You are the Lord of hosts. It is this helpless, barren woman that sees something in God that no one else yet has seen. That's faith. That's faith. Here's the third thing. Hannah humbles herself before God. Verse 11. Three times in this one verse, Hannah refers to herself, notice, as a servant. Really a slave. She is God's servant. God's slave. Lord, you are Lord of the armies. You are transcendent. You are majestic. I am your servant. That's true worship. God, this is who you are. This is who I am. So she makes a vow, a Nazarite vow before God to dedicate this child to the Lord. Hannah knows. She knows her lowly position before an awesome, sovereign God. So she calls out to the Lord of hosts. She boldly confesses, I am your slave, your servant. Do with me what you will. But notice how bold she is before God. In the midst of her suffering and troubles, she makes her request known to God, Philippians 4, 6. She pours out her heart before God. She doesn't sugarcoat it. She really doesn't pray a church prayer. She's incredibly bold. Lord, this is where I'm at. This is my struggle. This is my hardship. I'm going to give it to you. That church is faith. We want to pray like Hannah prays. What do you think the Lord could do with a whole church of people who say, you know, I want to learn from Hannah. I want to be that bold before God. He might, do you think he might move and answer? He will. Here's the fourth thing. Hannah trusts in God's sovereign care and her joy returns. It's verse 18. The context of that, verses 12 through 17, is actually a pretty pathetic encounter. I mean, really, as we're, as we're uh, in, in involved in this story, it's like, yeah, the only thing this story needs is some ruling religious elite who doesn't get Hannah, who doesn't have a clue what's going on in front of him. So church, meet Eli. And so the contrast here in verses 12 through 17, it's no longer between Panina and Hannah. Now the contrast is between Hannah and Eli. Eli is a man. He's a priest. He's a judge over Israel for 40 years. He's old, which means that he is respected. He has political and religious clout and power. But there's no comparison between Eli and Hannah. Hannah is miles ahead spiritually where Eli the priest is. He's a famous Israelite judge who does not get it. He severely lacks spiritual discernment. Doesn't seem to be a whole lot of spiritual life. He sees Hannah silently praying, moving his lips, and his conclusion is that she must be flat out drunk. And Hannah says, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. In other words, I'm not drinking spirits. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord and my anxiety and trouble. And Eli doesn't have a clue what's going on with her. All he thinks is that she's a drunk woman who evidently prays when she's drunk. So he just blurts out a blessing and sends her on her way. If Eli, this famous priest can't tell the difference between a godly woman's sincere prayer of faith and some drunken rambling, no wonder Israel is in such deep trouble. I mean, it certainly raises the question, does it not, of his competence and his character. But what we are impressed with, church, is not Eli. We're actually disappointed in him. Maybe we were angry at him. We are impressed, though, with Hannah, this otherwise very helpless woman. Notice the difference in Hannah. Again, this is verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
something's different about Hannah. She's eating. And the inference is she's also smiling. You don't look at her as a sad, depressed woman. She's, she's no longer sad. But here's what the, what's so amazing, church. And please get this. The amazing thing about this is that Hannah's joy has returned, but God has not answered her prayer yet. She's still barren. She still has no heir. She has no son. Yet her appetite is back, and she's no longer sad. So her actual circumstances have not changed. What's going on? Hannah knows and trusts that the Lord is up to something good for her. She knows that God loves her. She knows that he's in control. She knows that he has a good plan to bless her. Hannah then has hope because her God is, in fact, the sovereign God of the universe. He is caring for her, and he will always do what is best for her. Do you trust God in that way? Hannah's way? Do you trust him and rejoice in him even before he provides for you? Before he answers those deep needs and your requests? Or are you the kind of person that will only trust him after he has done what you want him to do? There's a big difference there, isn't there? Can you trust God? Can you rejoice in God? No long face, no sad face, no moping around even before he actually moves and answers your prayers like Hannah? Or will you just say, I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to wait and see if and when God moves before I'm going to rejoice, before I'm going to trust him. That's the amazing thing about Hannah. Her joy returned. She's not moping around anymore in the midst of her grief and her suffering, even before the Lord had provided for her. As a result of my studies here, I'm, I'm going to put Hannah pretty darn close to the top of the list of people that I, I want to get a, a tea with in heaven. I want to talk to her. Hannah proves herself to be a remarkable woman of faith. There are, I think, a lot of lessons that we can learn from her. But for the sake of time, I have two. Two short lessons. Lesson number one. Hannah's God. I trust your God. The Bible's God is the God of the helpless and the hopeless. He is the God for the helpless and the hopeless. When his people are without hope, uh, without strength and resources and any human gi gimmicks, that's when God loves to stretch out his hand and move. So Hannah's hopelessness and her helpless estate, that was no barrier for God, for him to move and work in her life. And your hopelessness and helplessness, that is no barrier for God either to move and work in your life and to use you. That's actually the starting point. Our God's tendency is to make our total inability and our inadequacy and our weakness his starting point. So brothers and sisters, it's actually when you come to the end of yourself and your resources, that's when you really begin to see God move in your life. Because it is the character of our God. It's the nature of our God. It's, it's God's heart for us to remember his people, to, to hear our cries and our prayers for help, and to come and give us his divine aid. We see this all over scripture. We see it right here in 1 Samuel. God is the sovereign God who is our helper by nature. You got to know, we see this most clearly and fully in Jesus Christ. Jesus left the throne room of heaven, perfect, complete unity and fellowship with the triune God. And he entered into this earth, a world of suffering and sin and evil and sorrow. Why? For you and for me, for our sakes. And on the cross, 
he actually proved that God is the helper to the helpless because he died for us. The spiritually blind and deaf and dead. You cannot get more helpless than spiritually dead. And on the cross, in his greatest hour of human need and crisis, Jesus demonstrated his undivided trust in God, his Father's sovereign plan for his life. He's going to die and absorb the holy wrath of God for us. 1 Peter 2, 23. And so what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Do you think there is a better helper for you in your time of need when maybe you are freaking out a little bit? Are you content here to just buy more duct tape? That's how you're going to solve your problems? Will you find a better God who will love you more than this God, Hannah's God? I mean, are you really content to leave here to say, oh, that's a it's a nice story, but I'm just going to leave it there. Will you continue to spurn the God who actually gave up his own son for you because he loves you so much? I mean, God loves it when we, his people, are in such a helpless situation because then we, his people, are actually ready to cast ourselves on him in, yes, courageous dependence. That's why we persevere. That's why we don't care quit praying. That's why we continue to show up Sunday after Sunday. That's why we go to home group. That's why we do the things we do. We persevere as Hannah did because living dependently on God is exactly where he wants us to be. And it's exactly where we need to be. That's the safest place on earth. And that's exactly where we as a church need to be. Courageous Dependence on our God for everything. Here's lesson number two. You don't need to be impressive for God to work in you and to use you for his good purposes. God loves to use unimpressive and rather unremarkable people who put their faith in him. To raise up Samuel for Israel... God doesn't need a woman with children. Panina had all kinds of children. God wants a woman of faith. Because Hannah is trusting God, he's going to use her. God does not need an educated and powerful and really religious priest like Eli. He wants a barren woman with spiritual faith and godly guts. So God is going to use Hannah and not Eli, Eli and his family are going to be judged. Baron Hannah will give birth to one of the greatest leaders Israel has ever known. You do not need to be impressive for God to use you. You need to believe that God is impressive. You don't need to be strong for God to use you. In fact, you might be here and just feeling incredibly weak and frail this morning. You need to believe that God is strong. You don't need to be the wisest man or woman on the planet for God to work in you and use you. In fact, you may say some really foolish things and do some dumb things. Welcome to the club. But you do need to believe that God is wise. We don't need to be an impressive church and have people think that we're full of pretty impressive people. For God to work in us and use us. No, on the contrary. As a church, we actually need to boldly confess that our God is impressive and that he actually loves to do some of his best work through our weakness and our inadequacy and our desperation. God loves to use us in our weakness even when we might be freaking out. Are you sad this morning? Are you frustrated? Are you lonely, weak? God can use you, not because you are impressive, but because like Hannah, you believe that he is impressive. So Hannah, in her weakness, looks away from herself, and she looks to God, and God says, yep, that's the one I'm going to use. That's who I want. She's a woman who knows me. 
She knows I'm the Lord of hosts. She knows I'm the sovereign ruler. I'm going to use that woman. And that is true for all of us as we look away from ourselves and we look to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we're at, give to us exactly what we need in your kindness and mercy for us, Lord. Be pleased to pour out your spirit upon us that we would really be paying attention to our hearts, our lives, our circumstances. But even more, that this day and this week, we would see our God who is wonderfully, joyfully, sovereignly, mercifully ruling and reigning in and over our circumstances and our lives. Lord, we confess our great need for you. And for those who are here this morning who are particularly troubled, feeling helpless, weak, maybe just clinging to hope, God, be merciful, be gracious. God, give us each that very true, very real, and very deep hope in you, I pray. And Lord, may we be a people who are growing in that hope, not just for our sakes and our families and our church, but especially, Lord, for those around us who are desperately searching for some hope in what can so sometimes be a very cruel world. So meet us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.